Welcome, one and all, to Pandora's Dark Carnival. Step right up, ghouls and ghouls, and enter Pandora's topsy-turvy circus. A wild ride through stories of the paranormal, cryptids, legends, and other mysterious things that haunt the landscape. Attention is free, but getting out again may not be so easy. Welcome everyone, this is Pandora and welcome to my carnival. This is episode two. If you're still with me after last week's word salad, I really appreciate it. Last week was um, a little bit unorganized and I'm hoping this week's going to be a little bit better and a little more focused on the subject matter at hand. Just a reminder, you can contact this program at my email, which is pandorasdarkcarnival at gmail.com. You can also see me on Twitter at, at SookieVamp. So those are the two best ways to reach out to me. There's not much of a presence for this program on Facebook. I share links to the podcast, but if you try to contact me on Facebook, you're not going to get a response because I truly don't monitor it. So Gmail or the old Twitter is probably the best way that you're going to... Uh, be able to get in touch with me. All right, so episode two. We're going to talk about the environment of a haunting. Environment is one of the first things to examine when, you, when you're performing a paranormal investigation. So in this episode, we're going to examine the environment in which the Bell Witch spirit manifested um, the haunting. Now, as we had said last week, the main sources for this podcast uh, in these episodes is going to be The Bell Witch, The Full Account by Pat Fitzhugh. Um, that's a book that you can purchase, I believe, on Amazon. You can also visit his website, bellwitch.org. He's got a lot of really good research there, um, a lot of good information. If you're interested in following up on this particular legend and you're not particularly um, familiar with it, I would definitely suggest taking a look at his website and definitely recommend his book. Now, for purposes of facts, figures, dates, things like that for this particular time period, I source it to Tennessee's Blue Book, A History of Tennessee, the student edition, chapters 3 and 4. You can find this information on the web at tnsoshistory.com. Um, it is designed more for probably, I'm going to say, middle and high school students, but it's good, solid information. And because of that, I truly recommend it. Um, you know, not everything has to be... A particularly sophisticated uh, type of book or resource and sometimes the blue books are the best things when you're looking for information related to the history of the state and I will say one thing when it comes to paranormal investigations you always want to look at the history of the area the history of the property um, such such as such an important thing so we're looking at an environment of a haunting there are two types of environments that affect, influence, and um, apply to a haunting. Internal environments and external environments. Let's look at the internal environment first. The internal or personal environment are things like your dwelling, your home life, your family, your occupation. Things that are part of your day-to-day -day life and reality in an approximate way. These are the things that for the most part you can directly control. So let's take a look at what daily life in the Red River Settlement in what would become Adams, Tennessee in the early 19th century would have been like. Now, the thing to remember about Adams, uh, we always hear Bell Witch at Adams. Now, 
Adams actually, at the time of the haunting, had not been incorporated yet. Um, there were quick changes and improvements that began to happen in that area rapidly after about 1825. Today, we're focusing on the period from about 1803 when the Bells arrived at the Red River Settlement through John Bell's death, which approximately marks the ending of the haunting at around 1820. So I'll be trying to remember to refer to this as the Red River Settlement because that's how it was referred to at that time. I may slip into Adams. If I say Adams, Red River Settlement, I'm talking about the same thing. So during this time, during this time period, log cabins were the most common type of housing. Now, these were not what we think of as typical, typical homes, you know, where you have separate bedrooms, living rooms, bathrooms, kitchens. A lot of them were one room, maybe two rooms. There was not a lot of privacy. The larger the farm, uh, likely the larger the house. Now, the Bell House was said to have been very large for the time. I've looked at some pictures online and some artist renderings. It's going to be everything from what you would think of as almost a larger farmhouse to a one-room cabin. Now, if you visit the property, there is a recreation that is a one-room cabin that is on the uh, property of the Bell Witch Cave. I don't know that that's going to be exactly accurate because I feel like that John Bell probably had a little bit more money than that, and considering the amount of children they have, I'm not entirely sure that it was a one-room cabin. I would say it was larger just based on... Um, the fact uh, there were other factors with the family that would lead me to believe it might have been a larger home. Now I can tell you at the time there would not have been indoor plumbing. Women were generally expected to conform to a no pants form of dress so even though you're on the quote-unquote frontier at that point you're still expected to uphold the uh, dress standards of the time. Now think about things like bathing, laundry, uh, water and sanitation it's it's different and it was different at that time there was not you weren't living in a situation where you had a routine that allowed for clean clothes every day no matter how much money you had and you certainly weren't uh probably i'm going to say bathing more than once a week um all the children were sleeping in the same bed you had to do chores just to get breakfast um this wasn't even like glamping or rough camping i mean this frontier life was not easy it was hard and i believe it created an environment that lent itself more to a haunting activity because if you move from the relative modern for the day uh, area of north carolina and you come out here to the tennessee frontier i mean you've uprooted somebody from what they knew and had some conveniences to a situation where they're, I mean, alone. There's not a lot of people around them. There certainly aren't any, you know, creature comforts. So that might lead to a little bit of an unsettled family life in and of itself. Now, at that time in 1817, 80% of Tennesseans were farmers. That means that most households survived on what they could grow or hunt. There was a lack of access to formal schooling. And what's interesting is that Lucy Bell, John Bell's wife, was said to have not been able to read or write. I found that quite interesting because I think um, even in the early 19th century, we presume that most people who were of the farmer or planter class probably had an education. And it sounds like maybe not everybody did. 
Now, if, as far as the uh, Bell children, uh, there was a school teacher that figured prominently in the legends. His name was Richard Powell. And so it is presumed that the children did attend the school at some point, maybe a traveling teacher. It's doubtful that the school year would have been what we would know today. And as I said, the Red River Settlement hadn't been incorporated. There were no stores, there were no you know liveries, nothing like that. So I doubt there would have been a schoolhouse, possibly at the church. Um, but I don't think at the time that they lived there, it would have been anything like what we would know today as schooling. Um, the main production at that time for the state of Tennessee would be hogs, corn, cotton, whiskey, and tobacco. Slaves were used on the larger farms, and John Bell did, in fact, own slaves. Now, from Chapter 4 of the Tennessee Blue Book of History, um, describes a little bit more, and I'm going to quote from it, uh, what life was like at the time. Most types of manufacturing, like spinning cloth, soap making, and forging tools, were done in the farm household. Household chores were mostly divided by gender. Women were generally responsible for preserving food, cooking, producing cloth and clothing, and caring for children. Men cleared fields, planted crops, forged tools, and cared for animal herds. Children performed many chores, such as gathering eggs, milking cows, and working alongside their parents. Some families ran businesses to process farm products. Grist mills ground corn and wheat into meal and flour. Sawmills cut lumber. And tanneries processed animal hides. Distilleries turned corn into whiskey. So there was some production and there was some uh, manufacturing, but most of it was not goods to market as much as it was survival of the settlement. Each person had their own talent or their own ability to contribute to either their own household or potentially other households. The settlers were fairly isolated. Tennessee was a new state in 1796. Middle and Western Tennessee were still somewhat considered the frontier. Uh, products mostly moved and were received via keelboat or flatboat uh, through the rivers. You didn't just you know, run to Kroger if you needed something. You had to wait until a boat came along if, it's, if it was something that you couldn't grow yourself. And the Red River Settlement was located exactly as it sounds. It was right on the Red River. Roads were poor, not suited for fast travel. Now, interesting about this, uh, this particular settlement is the one thing that was incorporated at the time of the settlement was the Red River Baptist Church. It was established in 1791, and it was the main meeting house um, in an otherwise very rural uh, area at the time of the haunting. As we said, Adams didn't incorporate until 1905, and the stores or the beginnings of a town around the area didn't start around to, until 1850. Nashville was selected as the permanent capital of Tennessee on October 7, 1843, the previous capital having been Knoxville. So what this would tell us would be that the focus of uh, the main government of Tennessee was extremely far from these frontier settlements. Um, I find it interesting that, you know, the first thing that gets built is a church. And that's going to figure a little bit later into our discussion as to what the focus of the church was on these settlements and how it's really not that much different um, back in the days of the Puritans in 1792. Um, you know, they were the main source of social interaction, information, uh, main barometer for belief and behavior. You really didn't want to find yourself... Uh, ostracized by the larger group. Uh, they imposed religious penalties for misdeeds. You know, the last execution for witchcraft in what we know as the United States of America took place in September 1692. That was only about 100 years prior. 
And while penalties were no longer capital penalties, they could still be socially and mentally severe. Now, there is a character that figures into this legend named Kate Batts, and she was said to be, her. she was dead and she was the spirit. Well, what we've learned is, is that she was most likely not dead and that the spirit was most likely not Kate Batts come back to haunt John Bell. Kate Bass did have a reputation. Um, she did practice herbal healing and what we might think of today as hedge witchery or folk magic. That's not as unusual as it sounds for the time. Most people, as I said, because the church figured so much um, into society, they tried to keep it on the down low a little bit. Kate did have contempt for the church and she was said to have laughed at most um, authority. The church figures into this legend because at the height of the haunting, John Bell had been excommunicated for the crime of usury. Now, the Baptist church was almost as controlling, in my opinion, of people's lives at the time as the Puritan church had been a hundred or so years earlier. Um, I don't believe that the Church of Christ had quite become as prominent as the Baptists were at that point. I'm not great on church history, so forgive me if I've erred there, but today we're focusing strictly on the Baptist Church because that focuses on the story. Now, as I said, the first building in the Red River Settlement was the Red River Baptist Church. This was an important thing. In fact, when the Bells moved from Edgecombe County, North Carolina to the Red River Settlement in Tennessee, John Bell first had to resign from his Baptist Church and receive a letter that he had resigned in good standing, which he then presented to the Red River Baptist Church. These people were not playing with their control over people's daily lives. So I found something interesting on the, uh, the Baptist Press. Uh, it was a Baptist, it's an article called Baptist History Evidences Church Discipline by David Roach. It was posted on March 26, 2007, and here's a... Um, an interesting quote um, says between 1781 and 1860 Baptists exclude, ex excluded more than 40,000 members in Georgia alone 40,000 members excluded from an area that probably was not at the time think again about the time that's a lot of people that were just you know thrown out you know you're no longer part of us because you didn't do what we said essentially so um, you know, across the nation in that particular period, they excluded between 1% and 2% of their membership every year. But the number of church trials was actually greater. Only about half the offenders received excommunication. Baptists, on average, disciplined between 3 and 4% of their membership. Baptists generally exercised discipline at monthly Saturday conference meetings. At such meetings, church members accused offenders of specific sins. The accused usually confessed guilt, but when the accused either denied guilt or were absent, the church appointed a, a committee to investigate the matter. The committee reported its findings at a subsequent meeting and recommended a verdict and a sentence. I mean, are you hearing this? Verdict and sentence. And this is supposed to be a church. This is supposed to be a supportive, a supportive um, group that is helping people leave better lives but you can see that we're this is sounding more like government i find it fascinating the members then voted on the verdict and the penalty if the offender was found guilty churches generally imposed either admonition or excommunication on offenders who were found guilty many excommunicated members maintained their piety and were eventually restored to church membership 
However, you know, because they, they, they pretended to follow Matthew 18 for church discipline. Now, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 in the English Standard Bible says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may establish by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Tax collector, excuse me. So they are definitely doing a very um, literal uh, interpretation of what is said in that particular version of the Bible. Um, sounds very bullying to me. I mean, it really sounds like that this could be manipulated um, in a way that would really uh, mess around with people's existence in their daily lives and certainly cause family stress. And that's what we're going to move into next. Now, family stress is also part of an internal environment for a haunting. As we said, you know, the Bell family moved to uh, Robertson County Red River Settlement in Tennessee from North Carolina. John Bell, who was originally a cooper, which is a barrel maker, he had his first farm in North Carolina that was about 323 acres, and he transferred that farm, sold it, and then picked up everybody and moved to Tennessee. We don't know why. Nothing it found the historical record to say why. So you've already got the stress of uprooting your family and moving them out to the frontier to supposedly start a new life. Then we have his marriage to Lucy Bell. Now, John Bell was born in 1750. Lucy Bell purportedly was born in 1768. They married in 1782 when the oldest she could have been would have been 17 and he was 32. Now, I think that she was probably younger and we're going to talk about why because this contributes to the uh, dynamic taking place uh, internally for the family that I believe contributed to the poltergeist type haunting. They had nine children between 1790 and 1813. Only one died in infancy. Uh, Betsy was 11 years old in 1817 when the haunting started. Lucy was 45 years old in 1813 when her last son, Joel, was born. She was supposedly 43 years old in 1811 when her son, Richard, was born. Now, let's talk about... <laughs> I don't believe for one minute that she was having these babies this late in life in the early 1800s in Tennessee. Life expectancies would not... Um, would, would not agree with that. I mean, the average life expectancy for a woman in Tennessee at that point was right around the age she's supposed to be having these children. So I don't believe for one minute that she was as old as uh, the historical record has tried to say she was. There are some schools of thought that say Lucy was much younger when she was married to John Bell. Uh, as a child bride, I'm just going to be very blunt about it. I think that Lucy Bell was a child bride. I think it's entirely plausible that she might have been as young as 12. And that's why she continued having children on into 1813. Now, how that contributes to the family dynamic is you essentially have a child being raised by her husband. And then as her child, Betsy, comes of the same age that the mother was when the father married her, all of a sudden we're getting poltergeist activity. 
Now, I will put in a big disclaimer here. There has been no proof. These are allegations. This is nothing. No charges were ever filed against anyone. However, I do think that it would not surprise me or anyone else to find out that not only did John Bell have a child bride in Lucy Bell, it's entirely possible that he was sexually molesting and abusing his daughter. And I believe that's where a lot of this activity was, uh, was uh, I guess you could say, enhanced because of the anger and all the other emotions that would surround an abusive household. It also is interesting that the PK activity focused primarily on John Bell, primarily on Betsy Bell, and was almost benevolent to Lucy. So I don't know who's angry about what, but somebody's angry in that house, and there's definitely more to the story, and I can't say that I would um, find fault in anyone for being angry in that situation. Um, so John Bell's excommunication from Red River Baptist Church, it was not for abusing anyone in his household. It was for covetousness and contempt. It took place on January 13th, 1818. It was a relative of Kate Batts who brought the complaint of usury against him, which resulted in his excommunication. Now, Kate Batts was actually a niece of Lucy Bell. So, adding into this dynamic, this internal environment that already has, you know, the life on the frontier, the moving out of your comfort zone, the the strife and struggle and dealing with potential sexual abuse in the family, a matriarch who was a child herself, possibly when she was married, and let's just add in some family trouble. Just because there's not quite enough going on with this family, we should add that in too. Um, there are definitely factors here that would <laughs> lead to some negative energy, and as we know, PK activity the more negative energy that it's able to feed on, the more stronger it becomes and the more activity that you get. Now, during this time also, um, you know, there's limited entertainment and transportation. So it's not like you could just, you know, get away from your family or find something else to do. Stresses like this, anger, all these feelings really are able to manifest because essentially you're in the same place all day long. Think about the pandemic lockdown. Think about what your family or home life was like when you were home all the time back in 2020, 2021. Think about how much you got on your significant other's nerves. Whether I'm, I mean, I'm assuming that happened, but just you know, think about what that was like. Now make that your daily life. You know, you never go anywhere but the farm, and you're stuck with these people. You're stuck in this house where you're potentially being abused. You're stuck in this house with a mother who, I'm not saying she was crazy, but if, if indeed he did marry her at 12 and she started having children, she had to grow up pretty quick, and I'm not sure that she would have been as mentally uh, prepared for the role of motherhood at 12. I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, I'll say I'm wrong, but... I think that this family's internal environment was certainly ripe for any type of PK infestation or elemental infestation or whatever was trolling along out there in the universe and just saw, oh, wow, this is a great spot. The, the cosmic good eat sign for this family, I'm sure, was just blaring out there into the universe. Now, let's go on to external environments. These things are like nature, weather, society, neighbors, wars, things you cannot control, okay? These are things that 
It just is what it is. It happened and it is. So the Red River Settlement is, is and was located on the Red River in Robertson County, 10 miles from the Kentucky state line and 40 miles northwest of Nashville. So that should give you an idea of the external environment and where this was all located. Now at that time there were wars and there were other dangers and that's gonna have a lot to do with the environment around you that you can't control. In 1780, Native peoples uh, had, there were several strikes against, uh, and, uh, against the Middle Tennessee occupation um, of their land. And, you know, big disclaimer here, I am of Cherokee lineage, so, you know, I definitely can understand why they didn't want settlers coming in and taking their land. I don't blame them one bit, and I'm not going to get too political here, but, you know, I'm just going to present the facts as they are, and uh, you guys can do with it what you will, just kind of where, so you know where I more than likely stand on all this. Um, at that time, there were small parties in 1780 of Chickasaw Cherokee, Chickamauga Cherokees, possibly Delaware and Shawnee, who began raiding the outlying cabinets and harassing the settlers. And the settlers would have been traveling between forts and stations, so it's not like you had any big towns for refuge against uh, potential attacks. Um, you really were on your own when these types of things happened. And a lot of people did die. I'm not going to lie. A lot of people did die. So now that was 1780. Whether that activity carried on into the early 1800s, I'm sure most people say that it probably did, but not as not as prevalent. It was probably smaller bands of folks who really, really were against the treaties. The Cherokee Wars ended in 1794, and not all Cherokee were in favor of that particular treaty. Uh, in fact, Tecumseh, who was a Shawnee, remained a factor um, trying to uh, recruit nations to action against the treaties until his death in 1813. By 1820, um, the only Native Americans remaining in Tennessee were in the southeast corner of the state. So if the Bells had to deal with any activity from uh, Native Americans, it was probably limited. I'm going to say they probably heard more stories um, by word of mouth of other things that happened. I, I don't hear, ever hear of any mention of them dealing with any, um, any you know, negative activity from any Native Americans. Now, what I will say though, is that the farm itself is confirmed to be located on what were sacred sites for the Native tribes of the area. The Bell Witch Cave itself has been confirmed to have a uh, Native American burial ground above it. So they may not have had to deal with any attacks by Native peoples, but I do believe that this external environment of being of having their farm essentially built on top of sacred grounds definitely contributed to uh, the haunting they experienced because I'm sure that um, those land spirits and those other spirits were none too pleased to see settlers who they had fought against, settlers who had stolen their land, now taking up residence over one of their sacred sites. That's not going to be a uh, recipe for much but disaster, in my opinion. You also had the War of 1812 that was taking place at the time. You had a heavy anti-British sentiment in Tennessee. We don't know anything about John Bill's leanings as far as um, how he felt about the British. There was also the Panic of 1819 that occurred. That was a financial collapse. So as much as now we're dealing with inflation, we're dealing with um, our economy, 
at the time it was the same thing just a di in a different way that uh, people dealt with so the panic of 1819 definitely affected the bells in some way and probably affected um, their day-to-day -day temperament and uh, their stress which is obviously as we said going to affect how they respond to and possibly increase a haunting you also had a pretty notable event that took place in that environment. Uh, the New Madrid earthquake was on December 16th of 1811. That was one of the biggest earthquakes in American history. There was a succession of aftershocks that occurred on into 1812 that were felt as far away as Montreal, Boston, and Washington, D.C. It said that President James Madison and his wife Dolly actually felt them in the White House. While the Bells would not have very likely experienced any damage from the New Madrid quake, they would definitely be in the realm of if there was any sort of environmental um, after effect, whether it be paranormal or whether it be um, mundane, they could definitely said to feel some effects. Um, there was definitely a probably a disruption and movement of goods by the river for a while because of the fact that the earthquake did take place along the Mississippi. So it wasn't a non-event for them per se, but I definitely would say they weren't as affected as people who lived a little bit closer to uh, ground zero for that. So external environment also includes geographic location and proximity to areas of heightened activity. Areas, the area where the Red River Settlement and or Adams is located is in an area with many associations to paranormal activity. Present day Adams, Tennessee and or the Red River Settlement is 30 miles southeast of Hopkinsville. I'm going to stop and say one thing here. I do have a little bit of a speech impediment. I work on it. Some days it's better than others. So I apologize if I do kind of mess up my words a little bit. I try to correct it. So I hope you'll bear with me on that. Anywho. So, present-day Adams, Tennessee, and the Red River Settlement is 30 miles southeast of Hopkinsville. If you, unless you've been under a paranormal rock, I'm sure over the past couple of years you've learned more about the Hopkinsville Goblins case that took place in August 21st, 1955. Um, there's a book on the subject, Close Encounters at Kelly and Others of 1955, by Isabel Davis and Ted Blocher. Um, it was essentially a situation where you had the Kelly family and they were felt they were under attack by little green goblins and they, best I can describe them, somewhere across between Yoda and Gremlins. Um, they were attacking this family, they were firing their guns at them, and then they run off into the woods. And then after that you have all this activity, you know, in the woods, these little, little beings in the woods. Um, Similar, similarly, the Bell Witch activity did also feature strange creatures in the woods. There was a, you know, there was a, a mule that had, I think, the, a dog that had the head of a mule or something crazy. I mean, we're, we're talking the craziest cryptids I ever heard of. Some supposedly a young man turned into some sort of creature. So the, the ongoing theme of both of these occurrences in this same general area is strange creatures in the woods. Um, Adams, Tennessee is also 87 miles southwest of Mammoth Cave. 
Mammoth Cave is one of the largest caves in the Northern Hemisphere, if not the largest, and it is believed to be an underground highway. In other words, there is a theory that you can start at one end of Mammoth Cave and go all the way to uh, West Virginia. Now that's gonna figure into another point I've gotten just here in a couple of minutes. Adams, Tennessee is 170 miles southwest of Somerset, Kentucky. In fact, Adams and or Red River Settlement is nearly parallel to Somerset, Kentucky. Somerset is home to the International Paranormal Museum and the Research Center. Certainly a lot of legends and activity around the area. I could probably do an entire episode on that. Someone has done an entire series on that. The Penny Royal Podcast by Nathan, Nathan Isaac is a really good resource if you want to learn more about Somerset and the things that have gone on there. You can also check out Hellier Seasons 1 and 2 on Amazon Prime or Hellier.tv, Greg and Dana Newkirk. Again, some great work by some great investigators. And Greg and Dana actually can be credited with uh, bringing up the Hopkinsville Goblins case to the greater community. So, yeah, definitely check both of those out. And speaking of Hellier, Adams and the Red River Settlement is 326 miles southwest of Hellier, Kentucky. In Hellier, there were more alleged goblin sightings. Um, again, Greg and Dana Newkirk, they run the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal. They have a Patreon. If you search that on Patreon, you'll find it. Highly recommend their Patreon and definitely recommend Hellier Seasons 1 and 2. Um, very much a, a worthwhile watch and something very, very interesting. I think it will change your view on the paranormal and what paranormal is. And you'll also learn a lot about uh, internal and external environments. They, like I said, great work. So I highly recommend all those. And you know, also from that same area around here, we have the Indrid Cold Legend. Recommend reading would be Visitors from Lanulos by Woodrow Derenberger. Uh, Indrid Cold is another legend of a um, extraterrestrial who interacted with people and this is all again in the same you know we're talking about things that are within 500 miles of the red river settlement where the first widely known haunting took place in american history so coincidence maybe i don't know but it would seem to me that that area is prone to activity for a reason whether it's land spirits elementals don't know what it is. There's a lot of opportunity for research there. And thankfully, people like Greg and Dana Newkirk, people like Nathan Isaac, they are looking into this and they are exploring what's going on. And they're inspiring others to go out into the woods and have their own experiences. So this is all a good thing. And I feel like that there's going to be a lot of breakthrough research as we go forward into the next few years as to how the land and land spirits can influence paranormal activity and what what we know as paranormal activity i think our perception of that is going to evolve and change and it's very exciting uh, adams tennessee incidentally is also 530 miles southwest of point pleasant new jersey and that is the location of the mothman sightings recommended reading would be the mothman prophecies by john keel so we've got mothman we've got injured cold We've got goblins, we've got Hellier, we've got Somerset, all these things. And that's just the ones that are that we can, you know, kind of tick off in our brains is, no, I think maybe I heard of that. Well, maybe I heard of that. 
You've also got Bigfoot sightings. You've got Mammoth Cave. You've got all these different legends. And this is in a relatively small area of the country. So it's not surprising that when you have the internal environment of family strife and maybe improprieties happening that are causing this to be a very dysfunctional family, tough frontier life, and then the external environment of, you know, your house is built on Native American sacred land and there's been all the strife of people having their land taken from them and then let's just add in we may have some you know in indigenous elemental spirits and uh land spirits that get involved in the mix too it's almost like the perfect storm for a haunting is what in my opinion we see here with the bell witch so how could this internal in internal and external environment potentially affect the experience of the Bell family related to the Bell Witch haunting. Well, let's talk about how it's passed down. Storytelling at the time would have been much more vivid. This is a much more widely used skill. You've got very little entertainment. Probably not a lot of books, but you have your brain, you have your voice. So there was a lot of storytelling. Think about if you take away your iPhone, if you take away your internet, what are you going to do with the rest of your evening? Well, these folks sat around and told stories. So as this legend passed from town to town, person to person, it probably became much more vivid. Um, so you had what was happening that gets multiplied times 10 when you play the telephone game. As we said, family, trauma, and stress that could have resulted in increased poltergeist activity, the fear and isolation that could have led to group hysteria. We didn't touch on that quite as much, but the way that I would, ex would uh, explain it would be if you've ever been in a situation where, say you're at work and something happens and it starts out relatively minor, but by the time it travels through the entire office, everyone's experienced it, everyone's freaking out, and oh my God, my God, we're all going to die. So that's an example of group hysteria. So this could be a situation where something happened with one of the kids, and if you've got nine kids, by the time it gets to kid number nine, the entire world's falling apart and everybody's freaking out. So group hysteria could have have fed into this environment um but i do think that you know the environment internal and external definitely played into this haunting its manifestation and um for how long it lasted i mean we're talking from 1817 on into 1821 and some of the things that were alleged to have happened with the slapping the biting scratching on the walls uh at one point someone saying they wrapped the ghost up into a blanket and tossed it in the fire um you know either these folks are dropping some really good acid or there's some serious uh pk activity and elemental activity that's taking place in this household so this week what i hope we've accomplished is we've kind of looked at the environment that fostered this haunting and the background and history of that environment so we've got i've given you some recommended reading i would encourage you to check out all of those uh, resources they're great resources and next week what we're going to explore is we're going to take a look at the different experiences that people have reported and try to correlate those 
to some more modern investigatory techniques that might offer some explanation for what people have experienced. So anyway, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed researching it and bringing it to you. And just a reminder that I do try to do this once a week. Sorry, this one was a little bit late. Well, at the holidays and everything, um, got a little bit behind. So anyway, uh, this is Pandora. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And I will talk to you next week. Sleep time. This podcast is the original composition of Pandora Blackthorne. Music is original compositions by Michael Blackthorne. Executive produced by Pandora Blackthorne and Michael Blackthorne. Subscribe to Pandora's Dark Carnival on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.